Welcome to Down There Aware. I'm Alex. And I'm Mary, Alex's mama. Each week we sit down to discuss various topics concerning gynecologic cancers and women's health care. In 2019, at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with uterine cancer and became painfully aware of just how unaware I was of everything down there. On this podcast, we interview experts, share personal stories, and explore new research. No subject is off limits, so we caution you to listen at your own discretion. Welcome back. Uh, Thanks for listening today to this new episode of Down There Aware. Um, We are your neighborhood family-friendly podcast all about women's health and gynecologic cancer, um, educating, advocating, and um, just getting the word out. From a young perspective and an old perspective. (laughs) You said it, not me. (laughs) We are multi-generational. This is my mom, Mary, and I'm the daughter, Alex. And, you know, we like to bring you weekly podcasts um, from various topics, really ranging in, you know, their theme. Um, We do try to stay true to our roots um, with women's health and gynecologic health and gynecologic cancers, whether that's research or advocacy, um, our personal experience, really that's a lot of what we do, or getting an expert opinion and uh, sharing uh, survivor stories. So um, you can count on all of that to be happening on the podcast. In order to get the word out louder and stronger. We need your help. We need you to rate us on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. We need you to review us. That's also very helpful. Um, and then share. Share on your social media. Tag us in your social media. Let people know that you are listening to Down There Aware um, because we just want to get the word out so that all women of all ages can remain healthy and remain down there aware. Last week, we talked a bit about researching and um, tried to give some tips for what helps us in our research. And so we got to thinking about um, getting a new diagnosis. We do our own research, but what else happens in the midst of all that? And one of the things that uh, really just kept surfacing when we were discussing it is um, having to or needing to weigh the pros and cons of treatment in particular for a new diagnosis. So we kind of wanted to uh, touch on that when you're given a new diagnosis. What do you do? Where do you go from that first moment when you somebody says, oh, you have this? Well, and like last week, we talked about, you know, researching uh, those topics. But then when you bring all of your questions to your physician or your team or your nurse or whoever that might be, um, and they answer your questions, you're often presented with multiple treatment options. There are, I don't think any of my conditions, and there's a lot of them, um, (laughs) that I have been just given one option. I know that that exists and probably especially in some Uh, terminal cancers or some rare diseases, there might not be options. But usually you're given a surgical option, a medical medication option, another kind of uh, homeopathic option. And so what do you do and how do you weigh the pros and cons of each? For example, my uh, cancer diagnosis 
um, which is really the impetus for this podcast, um, I was given a couple options. Um, I was told that the primary treatment was a full hysterectomy, uh, removing um, fallopian tubes, uterus, and cervix, leaving my ovaries because I was under the age of 35 at the time. And, um, you know, I had read a couple things about some medication options and fertility sparing treatment options. Um, but I took all of that information and I applied it to my personal life. And I was not in a place to have a child to try and conceive a child. And so because of that, um, I didn't want cancer in my body and I wanted to cut it out. And the doctor was confident that um, cutting it out would do the trick. And sure enough, it did. I have not had to have any further treatment, just follow up kind of checkup appointments. So that's a really quick example, especially for our longtime listeners who know my story. Um, but just kind of of the thought process and that I took the information, but then applied it to my life and how it fit in with me personally. And your oncologist really leaned toward the surgery um, in giving her opinion. Yes, she did. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bone of contention still (laughs) two years later. Um, Yes, she was adamant that surgery was the option. Um, She didn't even discuss fertility sparing treatments with me. That was something I read about um, uh, on blogs and a forum uh, and a Facebook group for some um, women like me. Um, But my situation was unique. I wasn't married. I wasn't in a long-term relationship. I was not in a place to start trying to have a baby or, and I had not been trying to have a baby for, you know, years before that, where a lot of people find themselves in that place when they're diagnosed. Um, so my situation was kind of unique, but yes, um, in all transparency, my doctor did lean a certain way in that instance. I happened to go along with her. I think if my personal life had been different, um, I wouldn't have jumped at the chance of surgery, but, um, you know, that's how it worked out for me. Yeah. Another example of a diagnosis, and it's a very different example of the process, is um, when I was diagnosed with lichen planus, and we've talked about that in uh, other episodes. Um, uh, It actually was a clinical diagnosis in both my GYN office and in at my dentist office, and after the two of those surfaced within weeks of one another. Um, clinically, uh, they made the determination that, uh, and gave me a lichen planus diagnosis. And I say clinically because, you know, I guess technically they would need to do a biopsy to say for certain, but in everything I've read, it says most of the diagnoses are made clinically. And, um, then if there's a question, they will do a biopsy just to clarify Um, the diagnosis. So uh, evidently, mine was pretty uh, clear that that's what it was. But interestingly enough, in weighing the pros and cons about what to do, um, my GYN gave me medication, and that seemed to be the treatment. But in doing my own research after I got home and in the months to follow, I have found that um, what what causes, well, I shouldn't say, 
nobody knows what causes lichen planus. And all of the research says that, that it's idiopathic. There's an unknown cause. In fact, even some papers say this is a rare condition. Others say this is a common condition. <laughs> Others say this is a fairly common condition. And these are all scholarly journals I've read. So um, there's not even agreement about the condition itself. Yeah, it just sounds like people don't really know what's going on. No, they don't know. They, what they do know is it is not an infection. It is an autoimmune disease. Uh, it cannot be transmitted to someone else. Um, I guess that's about all they do. <laughs> All they do know. <laughs> well, and it, you know, to interject, I it, I think some people who don't have a lot wrong with them, just generally healthy people, would be surprised at how many things or symptoms or conditions are considered idiopathic. Yes, and can and that we don't know why they happen. We think maybe this is why, or maybe that is why, and so we change our diet or we change our activity level or we change our shampoo or what, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but there's just still so much we don't know. It reminds me of, um, something like, I don't know, 15% of the ocean has been explored. Like a vast amount of water on the earth has not been explored. And it's the same kind of thing. There's always new stuff happening with people and always rare stuff that's happening that we just don't know what's going on. Yeah, so that was very interesting to me that they really can't pinpoint a cause. And then when different papers started um, naming possible causes, for instance, one possible cause is a reaction to the influenza vaccine. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. But then the more I read, I read that there were only three cases <laughs> Three cases of people who were diagnosed with lichen planus after getting the vaccine. So I'm thinking that's probably... I wouldn't say that that's <laughs> highly likely. No, but but I guess there's so little they know that they're taking every little bit of data they can to try to see if they see patterns. So I can appreciate that. It's not going to make me stop getting vaccines because... Clearly, there's not a documented, there isn't documented data. So um, I'm going with the vaccines for now. But that's part of what you have to weigh back and forth. An another uh, cause, and this seems to be more uh, readily documented than the vaccine one, but there are various medications that they are linking to a diagnosis of lichen planus. And um some of those are medications that I am on. <laughs> Go fact, figure. There are three of them <laughs> that I am on. So, hello, that, you know, that looks like that's pretty uh, clear. Those medications are somehow linked to a diagnosis um, of lichen planus. And m most of the people who have lichen planus are middle-aged women, um, and, and so you think about the various medications, and these are heart medications and diabetes medications. Um, 
a lot of middle-aged women are on those medications. So there's a lot of data. Um, And anyway, that's another cause that is uh, really has a lot of um, substance in the research. Uh, The other two causes are injury. If you have an injury, specifically for oral lichen planus, if you have an injury to your mouth. And interestingly enough, (laughs) I had a a transesophageal um, echocardiogram. echocardiogram. Yeah, I couldn't think of that third word. Um, Right before I had this issue. And um, I did have a busted lip and some injury to my inside of my mouth from that. Uh, so I look at that and for me in particular could very well be connected. And, um, and then the other one is hepatitis C. I don't have that. Hey, (laughs) Hey. something to rule out. Uh, but hepatitis C has been, um, sort of loosely connected. So there, and there wasn't a lot of data about that either. Most, the most data was in regard to medication and hmm. people who were on these specific drugs, beta blockers and things like that, who had been diagnosed. In the news. Today's In the News comes from the Mayo Clinic. And on November 5th of this year, so just this past week, um, the Mayo Clinic is developing a blood test that can spot more than 50 types of cancer that is mind-blowing mind-blowing it's a simple blood draw just like any regular blood draw um, it's called gallery with an i g-a-l-l-e-r-i um, and they are in partnership with menlo park it's a california-based biotechnology and pharmaceutical company um, and it's really interesting the way it works. So the test uses not next generation sequencing and machine learning algorithms to analyze methylation patterns of cell free DNA or CF DNA in the bloodstream. And these cell free DNA um, carry cancer specific information and uh, DNA methylation. Methylation is a process used by cells that, uh, to regulate gene expression. Um, and so, you know, we are learning more and more that cancer is in our genes. Um, and so this is a way to find it. And according to Grail, a company that is partnering with them, 71% of cancer deaths are caused by cancers that are not commonly screened for. Well, if you think about it, there aren't that many cancers that are routinely screened for. Um, this would be just just earth shattering if, if it really is successful. It would be. The article goes on to say that only five different types of cancer are regularly screened for in the U.S. And you can only do one at a time. Yeah. Think about your colonoscopy or your, Breast, ma- uh, your, mammog- your mammogram, mammogram and uh, so- prostate. you uh, you know, checking your... Well, we don't have that problem. Well, no, but it's down there. <laughs> it is. It is down there for our male listeners. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, um, it's a really promising thing. Some negative sides of it is it's not covered by insurance, um, which is understandable. It's kind of new, um, but hopefully, uh, you know, it will be eventually. Um, right now, it costs about $949. And it has to be ordered by a licensed healthcare provider. Um, the good thing is because it's not a treatment or anything, and maybe 
Um, I don't know enough about this to say, but it isn't being held up by the FDA. It's not something, you know, it's a test. So it's not something that is treating humans. So it seems like this is something that's happening right now, even though they're still developing it. Um, Grail says that gallery currently has an 89% accuracy in predicting cancer signal origins and estimates that approximately one out of every 200 people tested by gallery receive a false positive result. So one out of 200 is not too bad. No, not bad at all. There are a lot of medical tests that yield false positives and false negatives. So that happens and um, we know it happens. So I think that's not a terrible well, percentage. and I would rather have a false positive and the doctor say, okay, we need to order a PET scan and see where this cancer is. Mm-hmm. And then it not show anything like, cool, yeah. that is, you know, fine. Check me up. Well, the article doesn't specify what cancers it would look for. Um, so I guess that's still in the process or maybe they feel like since it's not out there, there's no reason to go into that detail. Um, just to think if it, how many did it say it? checks 50 i mean oh wow that's i know it's incredible yeah that's incredible um so gallery is recommended for use in adults with an elevated risk of cancer um, such as those aged 50 or older um, and should be used in addition to other routine cancer screening tests like we just talked about such as colonoscopy and mammogram so it's not a replacement um, but it's something to look forward to. And yes, Grail is currently working to obtain full approval for gallery from the Food and Drug Administration. Um, so it must have to get, so it must have to get approved. Um, but they're still doing it. Awesome. You know, they must be able to, to, they're working on it. So a really cool, it, you know, it's just nice when these things pop up because it shows that there's continual pro- progression mm. and there's and continual that's what it research. And I mean, wouldn't it be nice if just... In your regular blood work, years down the line, we'll be able to say, oh, you're at higher risk for this. You should have this test done more frequently. Oh, you're at higher risk for this. Or, oh, we see something's off. We need to check you a little closer. Um, so many cancers would get would be discovered early. And we know early detection yeah. is the number one way to prevent death from yeah. cancer. Awesome. And that was... In the news. Well, thank you, Mom, for finding that in the news because that's incredible. Some good news. And it is some good news on the cancer home front. And we are very excited um, to see where Gallery goes in the future. So another example, and really kind of the reason this topic came to the forefront of our minds, is because... By the time you are listening to this podcast, I will have had surgery to repair an incisional hernia. And a really, really <laughs> big incisional hernia. I mean, it's actually not that big in, in consideration of other people's hernias, but um, it looks really, it's an alien. On yeah, the- we should put pictures on the website. <laughs> yeah, if it was your alien. No, thank you. Um, so... Kind of some background of how this came to be. So an incisional hernia, obviously by the name, it is, well, let's back up. What is a hernia? A hernia is where your muscle wall is weakened and your insides are coming out and um, through that muscle wall. And so an incisional hernia happens where a place in your muscle wall has been weakened due to an incision. And um, and what is the problem with that? Your insides coming through the muscle wall. Well, just educate everybody. Well, they shouldn't be outside, <laughs> number one. 
but number two, um, particularly where hernias tend to happen, they tend to happen around your bowels. Um, and so something called bowel strangulation can happen and it can, um, cause all kinds of issues. There could be ruptures and blockages and all kinds of just nasty kind of things, um, that are just not good. Most hernias, they do a wait and watch kind of situation. And if you're not in pain, if there aren't any symptoms that are happening, um, they really just, you know, there's no reason to do a surgery to fix it. But And, they, and they've watched yours for a hot minute. I was going to say <laughs> a hot minute, right. Um, so we actually found out that I had a hernia in one of my regular CT exams that I get for my cancer. And it was just casually pointed out as, uh, by the way, did you know you have this whatever size hernia? And I said, no, I didn't know that. And so um, I went to my regular doctor and he said, you know, it's not anything to really worry about. We'll just kind of wait and watch and see. And six months later, I had another CT and it had gotten bigger and um, a, a larger portion of my bowel was now protruding um, into this incision. And so my gynecologic oncologist said, you know, do you... <laughs> She said, do you have a general surgeon? And mm. I said, I know I've had a lot of surgeries, but no, I don't have one on retainer. Thank they've you. All been special. <laughs> they've all been They've all been specialists. Yeah. Um, so she connected me with a really great doctor who um, does a lot of... It sounded like you said she connected me to Doctor Who. <laughs> Wouldn't that be an adventure? Um, but no, she connected me with a really great doctor uh, and he has worked a lot with their, their office and cancer surgeries and repair surgeries and things like that. And so I went and visited him and he said, yeah, this is something that I want to, you know, operate on because in addition to the portion of my bowel that is in the incision, um, the incision happened right where my shunt tubing enters my body. And you might be saying, Alex, your shunt is in your head. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> And so, um, if you don't know, uh, a shunt that goes in your head is called a VP shunt, a ventriculoperitoneal shunt. And the ventriculo is your head and the peritoneal is your abdominal cavity. And so the tubing runs right under your skin subcutaneously from your head, down behind your ear, down your sternum. Um, and then once it gets to your abdomen, they cut the muscle and they put the, uh, tubing into your peritoneal cavity so that as the um, shunt drains, it just drains into your body and gets kind of reabsorbed into that cavity. And you have two of those. I have three of those. Well, you have two (laughs) VPs. Yes, I have two VP shunts that I just described. And then I have an old, old shunt that we think doesn't work anymore. Um, That was actually, it's a um, lumboperitoneal. So it goes from your lumbar to your peritoneum. Um, and so that's just in my starting in my back and uh, goes around that way. So you got a lot of tubing in your peritoneum. I do. And his concern was, you know, we don't want your tubing to get kinked in any way because it's shifting in that opening that it shouldn't be. We don't want it to get infected. Heaven forbid there's a rupture with my bowel and you can imagine the nastiness that's in all of our bowels and going into a tube that's directly connected into my brain, probably not the safest Mm -hmm. thing. So, um, he's going to take care of that. And, uh, we actually, at the time of this 
recording that you're listening, he has taken care of that. Um, we're recording a week before I had my pre-op appointment today and everything is a go. Um, so the surgery is Friday, November 12th. It's only a two hour surgery and it's outpatient. So I shouldn't have to stay a night at all. And, um, we'll definitely update everybody, but that's really the, and uh, you know, I never imagined I would have a hernia mm. from brain surgery. Yeah. It, you, you know? just wouldn't put that together. And, um, let's note that the surgery has been postponed for two months because of COVID. Yeah. We were originally scheduled in September and, um, got a phone call that said there were not enough beds in the hospital. And even though it's an outpatient surgery, they have to have a bed available for you in case something doesn't go right. Or in case you have to stay one night or two nights. Um, so, but now our COVID numbers are as low as they have been. Hey, that's great. <laughs> that's a really, really great news. Um, and I even made a note today that going to the surgery center for my pre-op appointment, it was a different experience than it was two months ago because two months ago they had us rerouted through a different door. I had to get my temperature taken. I had to tell them if I thought I had COVID or if I'd been exposed. And then as I left, I had a COVID test. And today it was totally different. It was just open for business like normal, walked in the front door, Oh, you were in. still masked. Right? Yeah, we were and all still masked. Um, and they're still limiting only one person um, can come with you to surgery um, and things like that. So they are still taking precautions, but it's much less volatile than it was a couple months ago. But who knew uh, six years ago when I had those surgeries, five years ago, whenever it was, that um, it would cause, you know, such issues with my abdomen of all places. Well, but you certainly would not have uh, refused the surgery if you knew that was a risk because it was pretty emergent. It was. I mean, at the time, I was having major uh, vision issues and the the concern and, you know, my neurosurgeon told me is that they put shunts in people to preserve their vision. It's not a pain uh solver. It doesn't, it doesn't fix your pain. It's not, even a, though there's lots of pain. Yeah. And I mean, a good side effect is that for me, the shunts did help my pain. My pain essentially went away from my, um, surgery. Um, but it saved my vision really. Um, and that's what, you know, we were really concerned about. Um, and the pain went away because the pressure went down because the CSF was draining properly. Right. But that's not the case for everybody. There are some people who have shunts and still continue to have pain. So, mm. um, which I'm very grateful that I'm not one, but yes, to mom's point, I would not have refused the surgery or tried to go a different route. If I knew that five years down the line, I would have a hernia. Well, and I think your surgeon, the neurosurgeon who did the surgery even said, this may not take care of your pain. Um, and so you still have to weigh the pros and cons. Do I go ahead with it? And in th that particular case, the vision was um, really the ultimate concern. And you had a lot of vision issues for a long time before they very slowly cleared up. Well, yeah, my options were have the surgery. Your vision will be fixed by the surgery. Like that is it's a mechanical thing. There's no more pressure on your optic nerve you may not get better vision, but it's not going to get any worse. Mm -hmm. um, but you may still have pain or don't have the surgery. Maybe try some medication that has made you sick before and made your symptoms worse. And 
your vision will also still go bad because we know the mechanics of it. There's still pressure on your brain and your optic nerve is still being affected. And I would have chosen the surgery over again. Um, and it, part of the reason why now you may think, oh, all L or VP shunts will cause hernias or could cause hernias. Part of the reason is I'm a very odd case. I had to have two VP shunts, one right and one left put in within four weeks of each other. Um, and because my incision wasn't completely healed, my surgeon went through the same place. So that muscle was sliced, sewn up, sliced, mm. sewn up, um, and not really pretty in the sewing up category. She's got like a big long caterpillar on her belly. It's a huge caterpillar that now sticks out because of the hernia, which is mm. kind of funny. But um, well, I guess we'll find out if I had laparoscopic surgery. Um, and kept my ugly scar, but I'm going to try and convince the surgeon to open me up and fix the scar and, and test his artistry. I'm going to really try to <laughs> try to butter him up and say, I bet you can sew me up better than that neurosurgeon. And then you can brag to him. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And this is a young doctor, so I'm really trying to play on that ego. <laughs> so um, we'll see, you know, but we, um, because of my surgery and because of the holidays coming up, we are going to take a break. We are just going to recharge. Um, we're not going anywhere. We will come back and see you with new episodes and new topics. But um, we're, we're going to take the holidays off. Yes. And we hope everybody has great holidays and you get to spend a little more time with people this year because COVID is kind of being settled down a bit. Um, so hopefully you'll get to spend some time with people you love and care about Um over these next few months. Yeah, we are um, excited to, to take a little bit of a break and, and do some planning and really um, see where the podcast takes us in 2022. Yes. Isn't that crazy? We started this a month before a pandemic hit, mm. a global pandemic, and we never knew that we would make it a month, let alone two, two years. years. Wow. So... Come back and join us in January 2022 for season three of Down There Aware. We are excited to see you then. And, and I guess we'll have to do an update on your surgery in January. Yeah, we um, we may have a mini episode here or there, but uh, our full episodes will take a little break. But yeah, we'll we'll keep you updated on social media yeah, or something. We'll put so something on social media. So be sure to follow us. We're at Down There Aware on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. TikTok. TikTok. We're going to, let's do more TikToks. That's what we're going to do. Over the break, we're just going to slam you guys with TikTok. So if you haven't downloaded the app, do so now. Work on your algorithm so that you follow only us. <laughs> and no, I'm kidding. There's a lot of really great creators on TikTok. So um, we will work on that for you. But yeah. um, thank you for listening. And what do I say? Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs>